Let us pray in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank Thee for the gift of Thy Holy Spirit. In the name of Thy Son, Jesus, send Him now to bless and sanctify us, to open our hearts to the truth of Thy Word, and to the faith of Thy Son's holy Catholic Church, in whose name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. We continue our teaching from the uh, joint study by our province, the Anglican Church in North America, and the uh, Lutheran Church in North America, or the North American Lutheran Church. Yes, it's the North American Lutheran Church. And so we continue our study, and we are on the section of Holy Scripture. How were the books of the Bible chosen? And this is quite a question, and we began to touch on this just a little bit last time. How were the books of the Bible, how were they chosen? We have to remember that in the early church, they were not concerned with defining things for the sake of defining them. They were far more comfortable than we are, particularly in the Western church, with mystery. They were comfortable allowing a great breath. However, they would define things when they came under great attack, particularly by heresies. And so they would define them, not usually in an, in an exhaustive way. In other words, they didn't always try to give um, uh, an exhaustive definition, so to speak, but rather to establish parameters uh, of orthodoxy, okay? Uh, still allowing, setting the foundation, or more, m- probably better articulated, um, uh, expressing the boundaries that have come down to us, you know, the foundation that was already there, in Christ, in in the apostles, and establishing the limits of those foundations, but still allowing for mystery and breath. And so in the early church, most of the, well, all of the new, what we call the New Testament canon, the 27 books of the New Testament, were written uh, in the first century. So by 96 AD, somewhere between the early 50s probably, In 96 AD, the entire New Testament was written. And for the most part, these books began circulating together uh, around the church throughout the world. Okay? And um, there were sometimes some books that were not present, and there were sometimes additional texts, like 1 Clement, for example. But essentially... The 27 books of the New Testament circulated around the church throughout the world, from church to church, being read in, in the churches. And the church was very comfortable with this until the, the, the canon was actually being threatened. Then they had to define more specifically what the canon was of the New Testament. And that's where we get the official list of the New Testament as we have it today. The person who first uh, gave us 
the uh, canon of the New Testament exactly as we have it today was St. Athanasius in the mid-4th century, the mid-300s. Um, he also, uh, at least his, even if he didn't write it, the author was articulating his theology. We also have the Creed of St. Athanasius, which is a wonderful teaching tool on the Holy Trinity and the Incarnation, that, the, that of the Catholic faith. Uh, yes, yes. And he also gave us the, uh, he was the great defender of orthodoxy at Nicaea when he was only a deacon, actually. And so really the, the Nicene faith, the Creed of St. Athanasius, the canon of Scripture, all brought to you by the Holy Spirit through St. Athanasius. And so he's someone worth studying for, for sure. And probably someday, this icon here of St. Gregory of Nyssa is actually mine, but I put it up for a time for people to see, and so many people liked it, they asked me to leave it there. And someday our iconographer, Emily Morse, plans to do one for, for each side. One of them should probably be St. Athanasius as representing the, the early church. And then perhaps the, the ch early church father that was probably quoted most frequently by the English reformers. I would say that the Protestant reformers um, probably quoted St. Augustine of Hippo the most. But I would say the English reformers relied quite heavily on St. John Chrysostom. So it might be good to have St. Athanasius on one side and St. John Chrysostom uh, on, on the other, on the other. Or we could have St. Gregory of Nyssa, and someday a long time from now when I'm no longer here, they'd say, why St. Gregory of Nyssa? And people would go, we'll have to tell you about Father McKinnon. 25 years long we suffered through his bad jokes. Yes, so. Okay. So how were the books of the Bible chosen? Inspired by the Holy Spirit, the church from its earliest days, was recognizing what was never in doubt, the books of the Old and New Testament. And it's clear. Um, I was just speaking to a, a young man um, from Tennessee, I believe, who uh, had taken the Anglican Studies program online. And he, he was talking about, you know, some would say, well, did the apostles even intend for there to be a New Testament? And we were talking about how Peter actually recognizes Paul's writings and refers to them as Scripture. So it's clear that, yes, they did intend for there to be a, a New Testament, for their writings to be received as the Word of God, because they knew the word of God himself, Jesus Christ our Lord. Okay. So from the beginning, these books begin to be collected and to travel about. Paul tells us in the New Testament to be sure to read the scriptures publicly in the assembly, in the gathering of, of the church. The 27 books of the New Testament were recognized as authoritative and accepted as scripture in the earliest centuries of the church. 
this finally coming to fruition or being solidified uh, through St. Athanasius in the uh, mid-4th century, the, the 300s. The early church, led by the Holy Spirit, adopted, uh, adopted the books of the Old Testament because Jesus and the apostles treated them as Scripture. In more than one place, we see that Jesus opened up the Word of God to his disciples, teaching them the Word and about himself. And this is in more than one place uh, that this is mentioned in the New Testament, and it's referring to the Old Testament. So Jesus preached continually, but from the Old Testament. And so there was some question in the early church, should we receive the Old Testament? And the church said, yes, it really is the revealed word of God from Genesis to Revelation. And it is truly from Genesis to Revelation about Christ, about Christ. Most of the controversies are controversies about interpreting the Old Testament. Yes. Jesus and the Pharisees are arguing about specific Old Testament texts. Yes. Mike was saying that most of the controversies uh, didn't regard, wasn't about whether or not uh, the scriptures were considered the word of God, but how to interpret them. And so there was great debate. And actually, Jesus has more in common with the Pharisees than he does with the Sadducees, which is probably why he was harder on the Pharisees in some ways, because they were so cl- close to telling the, uh, speaking the truth, proclaiming the truth. Um, however, my favorite form of interpretation is known as, Sarah, interpretation of the Old Testament. Yeah, typology. That's it. She just turned 14 and she knows typology. That's truly understanding the Old Testament as a foreshadowing of Christ, the apostles, and the church of Christ. And so uh, typology is, is really opening the Old Testament scriptures and seeing them about Jesus. Canon. What does canon mean? Canon is the standard measure or criterion by which something is judged. This is why we call the scriptures the canon. A canon is also an official list. That is an official list of books. Though um, often clergy and sometimes laity too serving in a cathedral are referred to as canons. Uh, cathedral canons, because they are on the official list of those serving at the cathedral. And so canon can mean official list and also the standard. Part of the criteria for what is the Holy Scripture was this. These books rightly articulate the faith revealed by God in our Lord Jesus Christ and his holy apostles, and were written by or in the name of the apostles, okay, or were received as canonical by the apostles, okay. And so, yes, it is true uh, that uh, scripture was chosen 
because it rightly articulated the Catholic faith, the faith known throughout the world, revealed by God in Christ and his apostles. But once established, it then becomes the standard from that point until the second coming of Jesus of what is truly of Christ and the apostles. Does that make sense? So part of these books were chosen because they rightly articulated the Catholic faith revealed by God by, uh, through Jesus and the apostles, but once established, they then become the standard for us for all of time until the second coming of what is truly of Christ in the apostles. Does that make sense? Okay. You know, so that's important because some will argue, oh, yes, they were only chosen because they upheld the Catholic faith. So their, their importance is, you know, the fact that they upheld the Catholic faith. Well, there, there is some truth to that. But once established, the official canon, it becomes the standard of what is apostolic from now until the second coming. So we who live today can proclaim something, but it has to be in continuity with the faith that has come down to us throughout the centuries, but particularly it has to be grounded in Holy Scripture as God's Word. So if someone comes to me and says, Father Michael, um, what do you think of the writings of John Calvin? I will say, wherever John Calvin wrote, in continuity with the mind of the early church fathers, as grounded, most of all, in the Holy Scriptures, I rejoice in those writings exceeding, exceedingly. Other things um, uh, might be an attempt to express something in a different way, and I might find them uh, interesting. Other things, not so much. <laughs> but first and foremost, what he has written in continuity with the Catholic Church throughout time, going back to Christ and the Apostles, and particularly what is scriptural, I love. But I can say that about C.S. Lewis. I can say that about uh, Martin Luther. I can say that about something that I write. Um, that's the criteria. And the, play, the, 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 the part that holds the most important um, role in, in discerning what is true and what is not is the Word of God. The Word of God. Deacon Praveen. So, First Clement would be a great example of this because it was written to defend the Catholic faith. Um, it was definitely scriptural, based on scripture, but it's not part of the Testament because it wasn't written in authority of the apostles. Right. It, yep, it was written, written in 96 AD. It was received by many parts of the church for a long time as being scripture um, and was considered in some parts of the church as canon. It's my understanding that there are still some parts of the ancient church uh, today, um, I believe in like the Coptic church, um, that accepts it as canonical, though it wasn't universally received as such. Um, but right, Clement is writing as Clement, right? 
uh, as the authority in Rome, and he's writing to the church, trying to uh, clarify matters of church order in particular. Um, and so it's not something to be discarded because it, it uh, isn't officially scripture, not officially in the canon, but rather we should look at its great importance and that it was received as such by parts of the church. Uh, and so it holds a great value. And I, I, you know, I think that everyone should read First Clement and the letters of St. Ignatius of Antioch and uh, Polycarp and the Didache, all of these being written uh, by the end of the apostolic age, around 110, 120 and earlier. Clement writing in 96 AD, for example. What insight they give us to the early church. What was the early church like that had received these books? What was it like? What was the ministry like? Uh, what, were, what was the faith of the church? Uh, what was the sacramental life of the church? Um, uh, you know, all of this is answered in those books. They give us incredible insight into the church of the apostolic age. So, excellent question. Anyone else before we move on? Mike? Well, but we said what the reason was. Because they are writing as the early bishops of the church, and they're writing in their own name rather than on behalf of the apostles. So they're considered important, uh, very important, but they weren't writing on behalf of an apostle or, and they, or they weren't apostles. Okay, And so that's why they didn't make the cut, so to speak. Uh, but were received by the early church as holding, you know, authority, you know, for the Christians. So, particularly First Clement, because it's written so early, right? Uh, Ignatius is being written at in 107 A.D., so he's seven years into the second century. But First Clement is written in 96 A.D., and at the same time, John is writing his gospel narrative in Revelation and. So forth, so, yeah. Anyone else? All right, let's continue. Can we just briefly go back to Athanasius? Yes. Um, if, if I, I taught him what I could, Robert. I taught him what I could. I don't want to to <laughs> Probably don't. I was sitting in the room with Council of Nicaea. Yes. 312. Yeah, uh, no, 325. Secretary. He was a deacon at the time. He was a deacon at the time for the, uh, for the Bishop of uh, Alexandria. Yes. Yes. His things. He stood out at Nicaea because the the patriarch of Alexandria had a speech impediment. And so he, he asked his deacon, uh, who was caring for him in his needs, to speak on his behalf to defend the faith. And, and so Athanasius, as a deacon, 
begins to defend the faith and literally carries the day in Nicaea. Yeah, incredible. Yes. Everything goes on in the church for 70 years. You know, you know, some people will say, you know, oh, the debate about X, Y, and Z has been going on now since, you know, 1976. Who you'll know what I'm talking about now. And I'll just say, you know, we're, 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 we, you know, I don't even think my edition may be off. No, we haven't even hit 50 years of that controversy yet. You know, it's going to take at least another 25, if not 50 years, to settle that completely, you know. And uh, uh, may it be my dying breath to see it. But anyway, um, at least arrows can't be shot through the camera by some, you know. Who wrote the books of the Bible? Well, ultimately, the author is God. And we talked about this last time, that God, the Holy Spirit, speaks through the writers of the Old and New Testament. And so that, that great quote, uh, divinely inspired, humanly expressed. God's Holy Spirit inspired humans to write the books of the Bible. Would someone look up First Thessalonians? You'll know how to find it because it's right before Second Thessalonians. First Thessalonians chapter 2. Verse 13, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, 13. And when, uh, I'll point to you, when you got it? Go ahead. Yeah, it's 2, 13. That's what it says here, yeah. Right. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God. Well, I mean, that's so good it should be on a license plate, right? I mean, that, that is fantastic. That is fantastic. Mike, do you think you could just a little bit louder for the, those at home can read that? Because that's an important, important verse here. Wow, that's one of my new favorite passages. That's great. It's hit me in a whole new way in this context. That's, yeah, that's wonderful. So God's Holy Spirit inspired humans to write the books of the Bible. And again, at home, please look up 1 Thessalonians 2.13. He made full use of the faculties and powers of the human authors, giving them the words and supervising the writing so that the words are, quote, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God. That is awesome. As God took on human flesh in Jesus and became man in the incarnation, so God uses the human words of the Bible to reveal himself. And in this sense, the word of God is sacramental. Right? There's an outward invisible sign that is the written word, but through it is conveyed the word of God, the divine word of God. 
So God uses the human words of the Bible to reveal himself. The human authors were carried along by the Holy Spirit and spoke from God. Would someone please read 2 Peter 1.21 and maybe um, read it quite loudly for it to be heard. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21. Got it? Go ahead. Amen. As they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. These, uh, so, I mean, this is what it comes down to. We either believe the Bible is the Word of God, or we don't. And if we truly believe it's the Word of God, then we must conform our hearts, our thoughts, our words, our bodies, our souls, our spirits, our marriages, our families, our home, our churches, our parish councils, all that we are, all that we say and do to the Word of God. To the Word of God. This is what we mean when we say the Bible is inspired by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, the Bible is like no other book in the history of the world. Like the union of God and man in Jesus Christ, the Holy Scriptures are the union of human and divine speaking. And I would relate this to the Blessed Sacrament, where, yes, it's bread and wine, but as St. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 16, it's not the cup that we bless a participation, a communion, a fellowship, a koinonia with the blood of Christ. The bread that we break, is it not a koinonia, a fellowship, a communion, a partaking? Depending on the translation, those are all the words used for koinonia in the Greek. Is it not a koinonia with the body of Christ. This is why they are utterly truthful and reliable. Why is the Bible authoritative? Wow, I thought we were going to get through the part on the Holy Scriptures today. This is the longest part. You can see that it's written by evangelicals. See, this is the longest teaching right here. Why is the Bible authoritative? The Bible has authority over us because it is God's word. Scripture only commands what God commands. Because God loves us and has made us his children, we respond by loving him, obeying him, and submitting to his word. Because we love and obey him, we love and obey his word. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house on a rock. Luke 6, 46 to 48. That is, upon a firm foundation not upon the world, which is quicksand, not upon philosophies, not upon what I believe and what makes sense to me, all quicksand, but upon a firm foundation. We build our house upon the rock who is Christ, upon his word. 
Scripture is authoritative for both belief and life. And we must not separate the two. When we do, we are in sin. And I do that as well. There's what I believe and there's how I live. Now, a lot of the times, there are two sides of one coin. But I'd be lying if I said there are always two sides of one coin. Sometimes I will say, yes, I believe this, and I'll do what I should not do. As St. Paul says, why do I do the things I don't want to do? But if someone were to ask me in that moment, do you believe Jesus Christ is Lord? Well, of course. Do you believe the Bible is his word? Well, of course. So if he's your Lord and the Bible is his word and you love him, of course I love him, then you're subject to him as Lord and to his word. Well, of course then why is it that you're doing what you're doing? Mind your own business. (laughs) Scripture only promises what God promises. We hold firmly to the word because it is the only word of life. Quote, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. Philippians 2, 15-16. Jesus came to give us life abundantly and eternally. If you look this up online, as I've said, there's so many scriptures here that they they give so that you can go deeper at home on this. For example, that one, John 6, verse 68, John 10, verse 10. What is the central message of the Bible? If you could sum it up in two words, what would it be? Jesus Jesus Christ. What's the central message of Genesis? Jesus Christ. Exodus, Jesus Christ. Isaiah, Jesus Christ. Malachi, Jesus Christ. Not just Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The Acts of the Apostles, Romans, etc., Revelation. But all of the Bible is about Christ. And then Christ incarnate, Jesus The Bible teaches God's purpose for his creation, which, of course, has fallen. Well, yeah, let's ask a couple of these questions. Why why did God create evil? I mean, it causes us so much pain. Why did he introduce evil into his creation? He didn't. Ah, he didn't. Who did then? Right, man. Uh, The devil fell out of right relationship with God and his fallen apostate angels with him, but it was man in whom all of creation is united because we are both physical and spiritual, that when we fell, all of creation fell out of right relationship with God. We introduced suffering and death, the consequence of sin, into God's creation. 
And yes, you can look at it as a punishment, but in another way you can look at it as simply the consequence of things. If God is life and you turn from God, what are you moving toward? Death. If God is light and you turn from God, what are you moving toward? Darkness. If God is truth and you turn away from God, what are you moving into? The lie. If God is, is love and you turn from God, what are you moving into? Hatred or a perversion of love like lust. Um, in the book of James, it tells us, uh, the letter of James, it tells us uh, we cannot have both the word of God and the word. We can't have both the word of God and the world. Even I get confused. We can't have both the word of God and the world. We must choose. We can't be friends with God and be friends with the world because the world chooses contrary to God and his word. We must choose. But a lot of us, you remember the dance cards? You know, you'd go to a dance and a woman would have her card and you would put your name down in order to get a dance with her on that. You don't remember dance cards? Well, but you know what they are. They weren't in my lifetime either. I never had to sign up. I was like the Fonz. I'd go like this, and they'd come over to dance with me. Yeah, that's, that's not true. <laughs> yes, yes. Please sign my card. Um, but we, we have two people signed up with our dance cards. We're dancing, we're dancing with the word most of the time, hopefully. And all of a sudden we get a little tap on the shoulder. Remember, that was the cue that, you know, we say, thank you. And now we're dancing with the world. Right? And then, oh yeah, that's right. We're dancing, you know. And the word of God tells us, you can't have two people on your dance card. You must choose. You dance with the word or you dance with the world. Most of us like to dance with both to some degree. And I'll admit, I dance with the word more, but I do dance with the world sometimes too. Especially when Rebecca puts on boogie boogie hedgehog, boogie boogie hedgehog, boogie. Sorry, I'm looking for my place. Oh, so we hold firmly to the word because it is the only word of life. The only word of life. The central message. The Bible teaches God's purpose for creation. It tells us that we are not accidental products of time and chance. We have been created by God to live in a relationship with him, and to glorify him forever. See the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 17, verse 28, and 1 Corinthians, chapter 1, verse 9. You know, looking at the creation, or even the wondrous complexity of the human body, and wondering if there's a creator, 
who cares about detail is like looking at a piece of art and wondering if there's an artist. Or looking at a sculpture and wondering if there's a sculptor. The fact is, is the creation is so wonderfully made and there is such intrinsic detail that there must be a creator. A creator who not only put things in motion, if that was the case, it'd be like that modern art where you just take paints, throw it up and sell it for a million bucks. I'd like to do that, right? That's kind of random. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the Mona Lisa. Do you think the smile was an accident? Right? I mean, it was done so incredibly, so slight. I mean, it, it's so intentional. I like uh, last winter there was a, um, a cartoon editorial in, in one of the papers of two snow snowmen. And... Uh, one of them says, uh, I wonder who made us. I'd really like to meet him. And the other snowman said, no one made us. We're an accident. Right? I mean, it's so clear if you come across a snowman that someone made the snowman. But you come across a man and you go, gee, I don't really know. Maybe it was an accident. I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. I, 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 you, you know? I mean, that takes real belief, I think, to look at everything and say, no. But yet, God cares about the details. I've shared this with my girls. One time, I was looking out the kitchen window of uh, our, um, right above the sink. I was just washing my hands. Don't get carried away. I wasn't doing dishes or anything. I was just, you know, washing my hands. But anyway, I looked out, and I noticed a cardinal. And I said, who are you voting for, for Pope? No, that's a different type of cardinal. There was a cardinal out there. And then I noticed in the tree, right by the cardinal, was a blue jay. And then I noticed a finch. Those are the yellow ones, right? A finch. And I said, wow, if it was an accident, maybe there would just be bird. Do you know what I mean? There would just be bird. They'd all be crows. Right? There'd be one, you know. But look at the detail. Now, I'd love to say, then came along a peacock, and it was like, yeah, you think that's cool. <laughs> Check this out, right? Right? Um, but a peacock is kind of like an archdeacon among the birds, you, you know? Yes, 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 yes. Yes. The boos are here and at home. And uh, so, but the incredible detail, how can we look at this and think, not only is there an art, a divine artist, but one who cares about his artwork and each detail. And can you imagine, if you, did you ever wonder if an artist or even an artist who was an author ever wanted to enter into the story that he's written? Do you ever wonder if C.S. Lewis wanted himself to go through the wardrobe into Narnia? And so our author entered into his own story in the person of Jesus. You know, a, a personal comment. Uh, I did my graduate work in uh, biology and psychology. And when I got out of there, I got the degree, and they 
yes. That's why I went into the profession I'm doing now. Right, right. And not biology, yeah. Yes. But at least with biology and psychology, you could say to the cell that split, so was that tough on you? Did you split because, did it have something to do with your parents? Yes. So, <laughs> Deacon Patricia. You can't help but what? Hold the three persons of the Trinity. Yes. So I know it's Christ, but it is the Father, and it is the person, the Spirit of God. So well, oh, absolutely. I mean, as, as it says in Colossians in more than one place, the fullness of the Godhead was pleased to dwell in him. And Genesis 1, 1 to 3 is the first revelation of the Trinity. I mean, it's the first lens that we're given through which we are to understand all the rest of, of Holy Scripture. Yes, absolutely. The Trinity, yes. Incoming call. Why are you saying that? No. Yes. <laughs> Pay more attention next time. Um. We have been created by God to live in relationship with him and to glorify him forever. To glorify him forever. We have to remember, too, that worship for the Christian is not so much like when we think of gods and goddesses of the, uh, the, from mythology, right? Where human beings out of fear would, you know, oh, you're so great, who, you know, whoever, Right? That, that's not what, what God is looking for. We bow before him because of his awesomeness, because of the majesty of God, right? Because of the great love for God. We do it out of reverence, but not out of fear. Fear for the Christian is awe, is awe. But we do it to enter, it's through worship that we enter into relationship with God, so it's not just like, oh God, you are so great, you, you know, and, and this kind of thing. It's about entering into relationship through prayer, through the word, through the sacraments, particularly baptism and holy communion and the other sacraments or sacramental rites of the church. And we are able to partake in relationship with God that we may dwell in him and he in us. And so worship is, is not... Um, you know, what, you, what we think of, like when you think of the, the gods of Greek and Roman mythology, that type of worship. For us, worship is communion with God. Does that make sense? Okay. We acknowledge the worship of God through worship. This relationship is broken because of our sin. We live in a fallen world in which humanity has rejected God's loving purposes for creation. At home, read Romans 1, for example. We are estranged from God and need to be reconciled to him, 2 Corinthians 5, 20-21. This reconciliation God has effected through the saving death of Jesus Christ on the cross, Romans 5, 5 through 11. 
You know, many churches will have a cross but not a crucifix uh, in the church because they'll say, well, God, Jesus isn't still on the cross. And I always say, yes, but Paul says, proclaim Christ in him crucified. That's the moment. Everything else after that is a proclamation to what took place on the cross. He doesn't say when he's raised, it is finished. It is accomplished. He says it when? When he's on the cross. Of course, I also say to people, he's not still a baby, but I bet you have a manger scene that you put out at Christmas too, right? So we proclaim Christ and him crucified, and in other ways we also proclaim him risen and ascended and look for his second coming in glory. But the moment that gives meaning to all the other events is the cross. And, you know, a crucifix is a reminder that while we say it's the cross, the beams of wood did not save us. It's the one who hung on those beams of wood who saved us. I kind of like that. You should write that down. Who is this? The whole Bible testifies that we are in bondage to sin, death, and devil, and helpless to free ourselves. Apart from Christ, let me read that again. We are in bondage to sin, death, and the devil, and helpless to free ourselves. We are like the, the Hebrews who were enslaved in Egypt in bondage to Pharaoh. And without someone to deliver them, whom God raised up, Moses, they were helpless to deliver themselves. It was God's power being revealed through Moses that delivers them. So apart from God, they were helpless to deliver themselves. So we are helpless. We are in bondage to sin and death. But it's in Christ that we are delivered. Delivered. Even though it's two different Greek words, I love the fact that um, when Mary is about to give birth to Jesus, and remember, Mary represents beyond herself, all of Israel waiting for the promised one and the church as well. And it says, and it, it's different in the Greek, which is too bad. God should have consulted with me and I would have made sure that they were the same, but he never calls. Anyway, actually he calls a lot. I don't always answer. Maybe that's him. Anyway, it says, when the time came for her to be delivered... She brought forth her firstborn son. Isn't that cool? When the time came for humanity that has been waiting since Genesis 3.15 for the coming of the Messiah to be delivered. When the time came for Israel to be delivered. When the time came for all who are uh, to be in Christ to be delivered from sin and death and to be transferred from one kingdom our Egypt, which is the kingdom of sin and death, 
and from our Pharaoh, which is the devil, into the kingdom of the Son of God's love, which is in Colossians. Spoken of in Colossians. In and through Jesus Christ, God's kingdom has come into the world to free us from our bondage. People will say, well, you know, Christianity is so conceited. You know, you think you're the only way. And, and, but I say, but, but what if God really did become man in Jesus? Like with the Israelites, to escape, to escape bondage in Egypt, they had to go through the Red Sea. That was the only way they could go. There was no other way to get out. So what if they stood there and said, no, we're not crossing in the Red Sea. You shouldn't say this is the only way out. Perhaps there's many other ways. There's many ways out of Egypt. This is only one way. You're being very exclusive here. No, this is really it. And in a little while, we're going to close it. And that's all, folks. Okay? So it's not a matter of conceit that we beg people to come to Jesus and desire them and miss our brothers and sisters sorely who are not in the pews every Sunday. It's because we really want them to know Jesus Christ who is the way, the truth, and the life. He's the one way, not a way. He is the life, not a life. Yeah, hedging their bets, yeah. Yes. 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 And, uh, you know, a lot of people will say Christianity is, con you know, is conceited or elitist or exclusive because of that. But what we say is no. There's no greater story of humility than that of Christianity. Because number one, the all-majestic, all-powerful, all-knowing, omnipresent God humbles himself, taking the form of a slave. Not even born in a castle, but among the animals of the field. Dies naked to confront sin and death for us on the cross. A shameful death and a most painful, gruesome death. And, of course, a, a Christian will say, I can't do it on my own. I can't do it apart from God. So far from being conceited, so to speak, or elitist or exclusive, we are saying we can't stand on our own two feet. We can't do it. We're not all that in a bag of chips. We're not even all that without the chips. Right? We're nothing apart from our salvation in God. And then God, who is everything, humbles himself and becomes a slave, a servant, 
in order to deliver us. And then we argue over, well, you know, who are you to say, Jesus, that you're the way, the truth, and the life? You, you, you know, that's so exclusive. And he's saying, no, it's quite inclusive. Everyone is welcome. Everyone is invited. Everyone can come. Not just the Jews, but the Gentiles only. Not just the free man, but the slave too. Not just children, but, you know, men, women, and children. Not just for priests and kings and prophets, but all God's people shall be called the anointed ones of God. Right, it's all inclusive. It's just not always on your terms. Now who's the one who's conceited, right? You know, we want to do it our way. It's a good song. I did it my way. I love the song. Uh, it's done by Elvis Presley, too, you know. If you haven't heard his version, it's worth listening to. You've got to hedge your bets between Frank and Elvis, you know. But, um, but you know what? That, it's not our way. It's his way. And he is the only way. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes unto the Father but through him. Not because he's exclusive, but because God really did become man in Jesus Christ for the salvation of the world, that all who believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. He did not come to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. 3.16 and 17 in John's Gospel narrative. And with that, we must bring it to an end this week. God bless you. Thank you for being here. We will not have it next week as I will be out of town for the Memorial Day weekend with my family, but we uh, will pick up Oh, no, I guess for Corpus Christi, we'll have the special speaker as well, Father um, uh, Lawrence Bausch, who will continue his talks from the night before uh, and in the sermon uh, on the Catholicity of the Church. So that shall be, you'll see all this in, a, in one big package called the Catholic Faith. Amen. <laughs>